This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup is the brilliant Liz Gilbert. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's campaign, and she has worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as the president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks, Ron. Thanks so much for having me. Also returning to the roundup is the always highly anticipated Mike Madrid. Mike is a national political strategist, our resident expert in demographics and Latino politics, my fellow co-founder of The Lincoln Project, and he also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California. Mike, what's new? Well, not a whole lot new, but I'm excited about today's conversation. On this week's Roundup, the fever pitch across America's school districts as mask and vaccine policies are hotly debated. Governor Greg Abbott signs Texas's restrictive voting bill into law. What we can learn about the trade-offs of direct democracy by watching California's recall process. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll talk about the recent reporting that Donald Trump is planning to run for president in 2024. Let's dig in. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As America's public school students head back into classrooms or Zoom rooms, school board meetings have become the latest venue to host our ever-escalating divisions. Superintendents, school board members, and principals are all resigning after threats to their jobs and their lives become more common, most frequently over masking and vaccine mandates for students and staff. And board meetings themselves have frequently been overrun by shouting parents and angry mobs defying pandemic mitigation measures. And recently, three people stormed into the principal's office of an Arizona elementary school wielding plastic handcuffs after school administrators asked one of their children to wear a mask and quarantine after being in close contact with someone who tested positive for COVID-19. So Liz, parents being impassioned about their children's schools policies is not new, but this is taking a new turn and something relatively innocuous like school board meetings, you know, which used to be sort of boring, are now turning chaotic and potentially violent. And it feels like we're entering a new chapter of civic discourse. Why, Why do you think this is happening? 
Yeah. So a few things. First of all, just to start with, this is really horrifying behavior. It is legitimately scary. And it's something that I'm really glad we're talking about today because I think it's something that everyone really needs to be paying attention to. Um, I've done my tour at the DNC. I've worked on countless Democratic campaigns across the country. And we always talk about as Democrats, um, you know, focusing on elections from the schoolhouse to the White House. And it's a very catchy uh, phrase, but, you know, then you have to wonder how much are we as Democrats or really Americans of, of both sides focusing on how important school board elections are. And when people first start looking at politics, so let's say the lay person of the country, you really think about a presidential election every four years. Maybe if you're extra savvy, you think about every two years, you know, Congress is up. But there are elections happening all over the country all the time. And what is happening in school districts is particularly important. And so I'm hopeful that even though this, again, behavior is horrifying and very scary, I'm hopeful that people will understand just how important, um, you know, looking at school board races really are. So from a political perspective, look, I don't think we should be um, a country that that makes policy based on intimidation. And that is something that we're seeing at the forefront right now with parents and other folks going, you know, going right into these school board meetings up in arms and sometimes with arms. And it's, again, very, very scary stuff. So I think we need to be paying attention to this because I do not think it's going to de-escalate. And I'm curious to hear your perspective and Mike's on kind of where we go from here and how we how we make these protections to get these policies done as as they need to. Yeah, Mike, you've mentioned a number of times uh, that we're entering a more violent period of American history. And I wonder if you think this is the type of thing we're going to start seeing more uh, and more and get increasingly contentious and possibly violent um, in these hyper-local venues. But then also to take this a little bit broader, whose political interests does it serve to have these divisions trickle all the way down to the local level and, and, and why? Well, it's important that we start talking about this the way that it actually is, which is this is radicalization, right? This is, this is a, a radicalizing effect that has kind of hit a wide segment of our society. We're very comfortable talking about it when we talk about it as Islamic radicalization or online radicalization with, with terrorists. We're not comfortable about it, at least not yet, but we need to get to it really quickly when we start talking about it happening here domestically because that's what this is. As, yeah. as Liz just pointed out, this is about intimidation. This is about shutting down the public square. This is about shutting down public services. At its core, it's an anti-government effort. And the more we refuse to acknowledge what it is and what is happening, the stronger it becomes and the more the cancer takes hold in the body politic. We need to be very, very mindful of that. And again, I do believe that we are at the verge. We're just at the very beginning stages of this happening for what I think will be probably a two-decade phenomenon based on the idea that there are a wide segment of people who feel this extraordinary sense of loss, whether it's loss of status, whether it's loss of their own racial identity, whether it's loss of their own economic standing. This sense of loss is driving this very radicalized behavior. And um, school boards are, have always been the front line of this type of activity for two reasons. One is it's very local. It's very localized. It's where people can actually go and show up and, and feel that they're being heard in front of their local government. And the second is, candidly, it deals with their children more mm-hmm. often than not. And it's a very emotional impact there. 
And I, you know, here in California, we've got a pretty lenient uh, recall process. And I know we'll be talking a little bit more about that statewide, but it also affects down ticket races. And we're actually going through more school board recall races right now than the rest of the country combined. So, so this is really, um, really disruptive to democracy, which is what its intent is, is when I no longer agree with you, when democracy no longer works for my worldview, then I'm going to upend it. I'm going to take the wheels off of it. We're going to turn over the apple cart and we're going to be done with it. Yeah. And that's what's happening um, in school boards across the country. So how does this fit into what we know about the, the, the MAGA-aligned right-wing nationalists running for and taking over local offices? And, and how, do you, how do you expect this to play out? What will it take, if it's possible, uh, in the near future to restore order and sanity to these school board meetings? Or are we just on a runaway train? Is that for me or is that for Liz? Either, both. <laughs> I want to hear Liz's mock yeah. interpretation here. Yeah. <laughs> well, the first thing that comes to mind, and I don't want to say this so it sounds flippant, but it's like a not-so-low-key January 6th in all towns all the time, right? So that was the first thing that came to mind when I was reading some of these articles, Ron, is especially you know when these, um, let's call them vigilantes, if I can, went into this principal's office with zip ties. And so I know I've talked a little bit about my sister on the show before, and she studies kidnapping. And I said, you know, should these folks be charged with attempted kidnapping? They're walking with zip ties. And she said, you know, we're, we're learning a lot about it and it doesn't look like there was a plan to kidnap. However, what is particularly scary about this is how weirdly tied to the American origin story this all is, mm. that it's patriotic to stand up to authority. And I'm curious to hear both of your perspectives on that, but I think that folks think they are, um, you know, committing their patriotic duty um, by standing up for their for their rights. And I, I think um, watching that go down in small towns all over the country will have a very significant and deep impact on our politics because politics are local. They start local. And I think we'll see it just balloon up to the state and federal levels uh, sooner probably than we were anticipating. Mike, what do you think about that? I think that's exactly right. I am intrigued by the notion that this is kind of deeply imbued by our own notions of of patriotism and the founding and anti-authoritarianism. Um, but I also believe at some level, in some way, shape, or form, this is a new form of authoritarianism. This is literally designed to shut down. It, it, it's anti-government behavior that is no longer kind of a healthy dose of American skepticism about our government, right? We have a way to redress our government. We have this public forum where you can come out to the public square and ask questions of your school board members and disagree and disagree vociferously. I think it goes to a whole new level when you start breaking in to you know, offices with zip ties and start saying, you know, yeah. how dare you? Um, and that's that's the bigger concern that I have is is and I think Liz said this very well. This is this is really anti-government um, activity, um, if not at the level of January sixth. Then it's it's certainly it's kissing cousin here. Yeah. I mean, it sure yeah. looks like it. It sure feels like it, and it shouldn't surprise anybody that as this is spreading all over the place, the whole aim here is disruption of the system. It is literally anti-government behavior where people can do it the most easily, which is down the street at the school board meeting. And it is, it is about not just a loss of confidence in our government institutions, it is a downright attack on the institution because it believes that the institution is a threat to your way of life and to your worldview. 
that's very hard to reconcile. So to a lot of part of your question is how do you bring that back together? Yeah. Man, I don't I don't know. I don't I don't know. I mean, this is I think it's gonna get worse before it gets better. And we're either gonna reach a tipping point where half of the country believes that it has a right to tear down our institutions while the other half is playing by the rules, trying to preserve and protect them. It doesn't seem like a tenable situation to me for very long. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it does it does sort of feel like a runaway train. I wonder if you think that parents will begin pulling their school their children out of the schools where they disagree with the policies? And if so, you know, what happens to those children? What, you know, what sort of alternative education uh, environments do they put them in? If not, do they, do they end up just trying to replace the school board and overturn the policies they don't like? Uh, like how, how do you see this potentially playing out, Liz? God, I think that's such a good question. And also I think we need to, um, you know, deviate just for a moment here to, remind ourselves and all of our listeners why this behavior um, um, is even being incited at the beginning. Thousands of children are sick, okay? Mm -hmm. Kids now make up more than a quarter of weekly new COVID cases nationwide. Hundreds of students around the country are in quarantine before they even got to open their first textbook of the school season. So I think these school boards are not trying to... Um, you know, uh, coerce, enforce. I'm trying to think of like the toughest, toughest words I can I can muster. But I, I really do think that these school boards feel the responsibility to keep children safe. And I think we are losing, um, we, you know, uh, people on both sides of the aisle, like we thoughtful Americans are losing the argument that these uh, policies and procedures are being put in place to keep our children safe. I think your question, Ron, is such a good one. Um, what will be the hopeful alternative outcome so we don't continue to see uh, violence at these meetings? Will parents who don't agree with school board decisions take their children out or will school board elections become an even more intense um, battleground than, than they already are um, with this new kind of spotlight um, on, on what's happening there? I think we will probably see a combination of the two, but this is certainly something that I'll continue um, to follow really closely. Um, as a former educator, yeah. you know, I think this is um, this is going to be a very, very tense discussion, a very important one, and I think we'll see people kind of all over the map on on their reactions. Okay, so before we leave this subject, uh, you know, and I'm I'm not sure that you know. This panel is equipped to really answer the question, but I am wondering how this battle between parents and administrators is going to affect the psyche of children who, for the most part, are you know, going along with COVID precautions as they're told without throwing tantrums, but whose parents are, like Mike said, really radicalized against uh, the, the, the institutions that are making these recommendations. I know that none of the three of us have uh, psychology degrees. However, as the elementary um, educator uh, in the group, I, I will try and take this one. Um, I think, you know, when you have students in a classroom, you are trained as a teacher to keep your politics out of the classroom. And you have students, especially um, around an election time, saying, you know, did you vote? Are you Republican? Are you a Democrat? You know, what do you think? Um, and, and there's a really delicate balance that you have to perform as a teacher to really bolster the civics education without partisanship. It is really such a shame, and you two know so well, how Donald Trump made masks and COVID 
a partisan issue and it should not be. It should be about science. It should be about health and wellness. It should be about the future of our children. But unfortunately, a discussion about a mask mandate does become a political conversation. And so what it does for a child's psyche outside the classroom, you know, I think a lot of that is nurture versus nature and and what is happening at home. But in the classroom, I think it's actually putting a lot of pressure on our teachers to figure out the best way to talk about current events and what is happening without a political lens. And unfortunately, our former disgraced, twice impeached um, former President Trump um, you know, he really made this a partisan issue when it did not have to be. And and I think that will be extremely challenging in the classroom in particular. Okay. Let's talk about Texas, huh? Mm. You know, maybe we should just, uh, have a new standing. (laughs) What bullshit is happening in Texas this week segment of the, of the roundup, because it seems to be never ending this week. Governor Greg Abbott signed SB one into law, which you'll know as the anti-democracy law that spurred Texas Democrats to flee the state in an effort to break quorum. Our Politicology Plus community just listened to a phone call I had with elections expert David Becker, uh, a former federal prosecutor, uh, in a tapped episode where he explained the key provisions of the bill and what it portends for the proliferation of the big lie and new lies about election safety in Texas. Uh, so I just want to play a, it was like a 28 minute conversation, but I just want to play a brief clip here. And then this bill, one, doesn't address the security problems. There's no requirement of paper ballots in this bill. The audit requirements, there are some audit requirements in this bill, but they're actually somewhat laughable because first, digital ballots can't be audited properly. And secondly, they only require audits to be done in four counties. Texas has 254 counties. So we're we're talking about, um, to call this lipstick on a pig would be an insult (laughs) to lipstick. So, so, uh, of course the, the urgency of this bill, I put urgency in, in, in air quotes was built on the pretext of the big lie, further giving credence to the falsehood that our elections are corrupted by non-existent fraud or virtually non-existent fraud. And as, uh, David discussed in our tapped episode, the bill is likely to incite chaos at multiple levels, which is only going to serve sort of as a self-fulfilling prophecy to reinforce the big lie. So they are essentially engineering with this bill the conditions uh, in which after an election, they'll be able to claim massive election fraud and and, and illegitimacy because of all the chaos that it will cause. Um, so Liz, uh, Texas Democrats gave it their all. Um, uh, with, with, (laughs) you know, lots of fanfare and this bill still passed. So are Democrats fighting a losing battle? Man. So kind of going back to the conversation we were just having about school boards, I mean, state houses, if the last year and a half hasn't proven to the average American voter that caring about local elections and state elections really, makes an impact on your life. Um, I, I don't know how else we teach it, um, if not in real time. Look, we've we've talked about this on the podcast before, Ron, that the average American does not understand political tricks, right? So the fact that the Democrats left and they really exhausted all legislative options available to them, which I think is, you know, masterful that they knew what all of those were and really did their best. I think that's great. But when it comes down to it, doing your best in a state like Texas is not 
realistically going to get you what you need and want. I think the Democrats also run the risk of looking like they are not doing their job. Okay. So you're elected to do good for your constituents and many might see fleeing the state um, as not being present or doing your job because they don't understand, you know, Robert's rules of orders. So we've talked about the need for a stronger civics education before and, and all of that, but it's hard for the average voter to follow along with what's happening. And they might think, stay in Austin, build these relationships or spend more time recruiting candidates to to replace, you know, the bad guys. I just think this is a very difficult thing for the voter to understand. And again, this is not even touching, you know, the contents of the bill and where I don't believe you can put the the phrase curtail access to voting yeah. with anything positive in in the same sentence. Yeah, I mean, Mike, I, I think one of the more recent podcasts, I think we we separated these these issues into pre and post election, right? The the anti democracy bills, and I and I want to I want to re up that part of this conversation because I wonder if this isn't um, you know as I was talking to David, who is. Uh, you know, by all accounts, nonpartisan when it comes to his analysis of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, it, to me, it seems intentionally engineered to to create chaos after the fact. Which I get all of the you know all the the fight that Democrats are fighting uh, on this front. The loudest is access to voting on the front end. Right. Okay, I un- I understand that, and it's a it's a much easier thing for people to 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 grab hold of and to advocate for. That's great, but the the thing that concerns me far more is what happens after and as votes are being counted. And um, and I wonder if you think this is the model that they're actually going to follow across the country, and if this is just the you know this is just the beginning of 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 trying to delegitimize. Um, and and attack the nonpartisan election workers and the and the functions of of uh, of running elections that really are are the the backstop to to integrity. Well, look, you can do both, right? You can attack access and the process, and that's what I think this is really all about. Where we're heading is in two very different directions as a country. Um, most of the laws that have been passed related to voting rights have actually expanded the franchise this this year. They just happen to be in blue states where they're making more permanent some of these rights and abilities and ways to vote. And that's in, in red states, you're seeing the exact opposite direction. You're seeing voting restrictions. You're seeing a clamping down on absentee ballot voting. You're seeing a clamping down on the amount of hours that, that polling places are open. There are uh, attempts to kind of limit, the, certainly the time frame, it, it, speaking generously on, on what the objective is here, they're trying to, to limit the amount of time that people can vote, especially in some of these dense, overwhelmingly Democratic counties, which yeah. is what's happening in Texas. Yeah. So does that create a process problem at the at the back end? Yeah, you bet it does. Of course it does. So the, the attempt is really both. It's supposed to limit the access, right, to limit the enfranchisement process. At the same time, the potentiality, the potential of actually disrupting the vote count itself and, and, and adding some question, quote-unquote questions about who voted, how many votes were counted, uh, where certain voting machines used are all designed to undermine the electoral process. Yeah. Look, this is going to become a standard tactic that the Republican parties use, and they're going to use it everywhere. Um, they're going to use it most specifically in counties where they're not strong, specifically in states where they're not strong. But even in some of the most out-of-reach states like California, you're already hearing the president say and, and Republican candidates say that the, 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 you know, the system is rigged. 
that the, the system is not working, that votes are already being stolen, and it's already been designed to make sure that there's not a fair outcome. Um, that's just going to be, unfortunately, standard practice in the way that 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 quote unquote democracy is practiced by one major party, and it's it's not only unfortunate; it's just very dangerous. So, a question we get asked a lot is, um, how do other states find their Stacey Abrams? And mm. I think a better question might be, what did Stacey Abrams actually do in Georgia? Uh, that could be replicated in states like Texas, and how do we foster that? So, Liz, why don't you take that one first, and then Mike can follow up because I know this this question about what what Stacey Abrams and her organization actually achieved in Georgia um, that was that was positive and helpful is um, is something we've talked about before, and we should be very clear about about what that was. Mike and I have actually talked a lot about this, not the how do you find your Stacey Abrams, but how do you manage um, her effectiveness, her, you know, efficiency and, and her outcomes. Um, but I will uh, start with the first part and, and leave that second part to Mike, who is by far the expert on this. Um, look, we as Americans, whether you are Republican or Democrat, we have to do so much better with candidate recruitment. And that is not just about finding people to run for the United States Senate. It is not just about finding people for Congress. It goes all the way down to school boards, to mayoral elections, city council. We really need to do a better job of recruiting candidates, training candidates, and supporting candidates. Because Stacey Abrams, who knows if she would have had the platform that she did if she did not have such an incredible bid um, for statewide office. She is a remarkable woman, has a very compelling story, and she does not give a damn when she is told no. And so those three factors only were then supported by her drive, her determination, but really the financial and grassroots support that she received. So there really does need to be a perfect storm. It does start with a remarkable candidate, or let's just say in this case, leader. Um, but you really need to identify community leaders and do whatever it takes to recruit them, train them and support them because those should be the folks on the front lines, whether they're serving in elected office or serving as leaders of other, um, you know, very crucial statewide and nationwide efforts. Mike? Well, look, ultimately the, the solution to all of, all of this, or at least most of it is, is increasing voter turnout and civic engagement. Yeah. There's just no two ways about it. We can talk yeah. about voter fraud. We can talk about voter access. We can talk about the process and we should. And we should remain very vigilant about that. But you know, if you, again, take a look at California, and I bring it up only because um, we have an election coming up in the next week or so, we're expecting maybe 53% to turn out. And, we, and that's pretty strong for a special election, right? right. These are remarkably low numbers. So yeah. uh, in a democracy, right, there, there were some of these early signs for many, many years with voter apathy and voter disengagement which are much, much bigger barriers to access than anything institutionally put in place to prevent voters from voting by a massively wide margin. And again, that's not to say that we shouldn't remain eternally vigilant on protecting the franchise for everybody, but we should also focus on where the biggest areas of opportunities are, and that's a big part of what Stacey Abrams was doing. She was going to fish where the fish were, right? There were unregistered voters. There were voters that were disengaged. That's who she would focus on bringing into the fold. That is something 
that we don't necessarily need a, a charismatic leader or even good party work doing what it re- is incumbent upon every one of us to do is to engage and make sure that we're all working to bring everybody into the into the into the process. Look, folks, a lot of this, a lot of what all of the solution to all of this is, is better civic engagement. And that's why some of these efforts to either suppress the vote or shout down people at school board meetings are so dangerous, is they're trying to shut down the most basic act of civic discourse, which is the town hall meeting, right? Mm-hmm. That's what, what de Tocqueville taught us, is that was what was uniquely American, is Americans have this place where we come and we meet and we talk about what's going on in our government. And when that is shut down, the whole root of the tree starts to, to atrophy and fall apart and kill the entire, the entire thing. That's what we're in danger of losing. That's what happens when a voter who's registered to vote doesn't vote or somebody who is eligible to vote isn't registered. It's that weakening. Vote by vote is the way these things nickel and dime themselves away. And so we shouldn't be looking towards that charismatic leader to save our democracy, although it's phenomenal that she did or that other people engaged in this process are. It's something that every one of us can and should be doing. And it, it's, it sounds trite. It perhaps is. But that, whether democracy survives, American-style democracy survives over the next 10, 15, 20 years is incumbent upon that question, is what are we doing? Are we being intimidated out of the public square? Are we engaging and actively seeking the engagement of other people in our communities to be involved in the governance process, or are we not? Mm-hmm. They're the very basic blocking and tackling questions of government, of, of American-style democracy. And if we fail at that, we will have failed a generation because we will lose it. And one of the things you've mentioned before, Mike, I want to I want to re-up this for our listeners as well, is that at this point in the cycle, to the extent that you are getting involved and, and for example, donating to organizations, they ought not to be candidates right now and they ought to be organizations. Can you um, explain that? Yeah, and again, that's that's just my opinion, but it's one I hold very strongly having been doing this for 30 years or however long yeah. I've been doing it, is it's important to remember that right now investing in candidates, especially in such a hyper-partisan environment, is probably not the best use of your resources. If you're inclined to, to give five, 10, 15, 100, 250 bucks, give to an organization that is building capacity right now that is reaching new voters, that is registering new voters, that is hiring precinct workers to get people out to vote, that is working to expand the franchise. That's where your investment dollars should be going at this point in time. I know a lot of candidates will be very critical of that, but the truth of the matter is 90% of incumbents are going to win re-election because of the way these districts are gerrymandered. And there's nothing wrong with trying to support or change that dynamic. But what I do know is this, there is not a single congressional district in America that will hit 100% turnout. There's yeah. always more growth, and yeah. that's where we should be focused on, especially in an off year, meaning no elections this year, ahead of the midterms, is you should be focusing on organizations that are building capacity to make sure that people are getting out to vote. Yeah. Are there, you know, there's one, uh, not specifically about turnout, uh, but there is one organization I want to mention, which is David Becker's uh, Center for Election Innovation and Research, which they just yesterday made a big announcement, which is that they're launching a, a legal defense fund essentially to protect the nonpartisan workers from attacks and and Jeez. undermining tactics yeah. um, and basically saying, you know, we will have your back. Uh, and the two primary advisors on that are um, – Bauer and Ginsburg. Bauer was uh, White House chief counsel under Obama, I believe, and Ben Ginsburg, who 
uh, obviously is a, is a longtime uh, uh, elections attorney on the right, a Republican lawyer. Um, and those two are teaming up essentially to stand up for nonpartisan election workers. And, and I can't think of a, you know, that's on the back end of these elections, right? Which mm-hmm. I'm, which I'm sort of focused on. Are right. there any organizations that you, um, that come to mind that you feel like are doing good work in this space that you want to mention? We can put a link in the show notes, but if there is, feel free to mention them. Well, but- I mean, we'll follow up and put some links in yeah. after the show, but what yeah. I will say is this, I mean, what you are looking for Stacey Abrams type work state by state. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't think there's a national effort beyond the two major parties, and I don't have a whole right. lot of confidence right, in either no. of them right. yeah. to get the job done. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay, we will. Um, we'll put some links in the show notes today, uh, but let's move on to California. Next week, Californians will finish filling out their ballots with two questions: Should Governor Newsom be removed from office? And if so, who should replace him? The dynamics of the race have shifted a bit since we first started discussing Newsom's prospects. So let's talk briefly about the horse race, uh, which Mike, you and I have discussed on on Tapped before. But then I also want to talk broadly about direct democracy. Um, so, So first, the horse race here, you know, for much of August, 538 had keep within just a point or two of remove. Through, um, you know, through, uh, but the margin has expanded a bit since then. So, Mike, when we first start, started talking about the recall, Newsom's survival seemed like it was a sure thing. And then in the last months or so, polls started showing a more uncomfortable margin for Newsom. Um, why did the race narrow? First of all, do you want to do you want to briefly like explain the genesis of this recall and what you know what caused it in the first place? And then why did this race narrow? And where is it right now? Sure. There's a couple things to remember about California. Um, well, there's a lot to remember about California <laughs> in our electoral process. But one of those is there is almost at any given point in time, there's always a recall process working. And despite conventional wisdom, it is extraordinarily hard to get a recall qualified. Uh, it's very expensive. It's an extremely expensive state, and you have to get 5% of the, pre- of the previous elections uh, registered voters to sign a petition. Um, to, to place a, a, a governor under recall. That, that's a very, very high burden. I think there's been 275 recalls attempted. This is only the second one that is qualified. So I want to put that into perspective. There's this kind of narrative that's driving that's really easy to do. It is not. It is exceedingly difficult to qualify mm. a recall. There's but, two, but proportionally, that's low, right? Proportionally, it's low, but when you do it on a state the size of California, like if it was in Rhode Island and you can go do it in Costco, you know, the day before, you know, you can gather those signatures a lot easier. When you start doing it a state the size of California, both in in geography and population, it's exceedingly Which is like a country of its own. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. It's just extremely difficult to do and, and extremely expensive, incidentally. Yeah. So there's two things that led to this. One is, again, and, and this this recall, this specific recall began before the pandemic did, but it actually kind of caught fire as the COVID restrictions started to take place. So it, it really was luck. And, and both this recall and the recall that brought Schwarzenegger to office um, requires some some luck and some circumstance. The, the previous recall uh, under Schwarzenegger actually caught fire when we had rolling blackouts, when the energy markets collapsed. Uh, that was not that was completely unforeseen by the proponents of the recall the same way the pandemic was completely unforeseen so while there's always a recall effort going 99% of these things don't actually uh, move forward they just happen to get lucky uh there was also the french laundry episode which yeah. of course everybody is familiar with where where gavin newsom was 
uh, either real or perceived to be an acting in defiance at the at a swanky restaurant in Napa. Not wearing a mask. Yeah. Not wearing a mask, right. and you know, in violation of some of the standards in certain counties, and so people were were you know kind of gave a personification of people being angry. Yeah, and it started to move forward. Uh, and also because of the pandemic, we have to remember this, the, the, the qualification stage was extended by a period of months by a judge who said, because of the pandemic, we're going to give you an extended period of time to actually gather the signatures. Mm. So without all of these things happening, this never would have happened, uh, though at least the likelihood of it would be greatly diminished. So here we find ourselves, yeah. um, you know, um, the, the qualification was was made apparent really as I think most of the, the height of the zeitgeist of the COVID pandemic. People were very frustrated. They were angry. They weren't feeling that uh, the governor had handled it properly. This is not just Republicans, but it was primarily Republicans. There was a wide segment of both independents and Democrats who were saying, enough, we're not happy about this. And you saw polling largely reflect that. Uh, as we've come out of this, as as the dynamic has changed – um, we're starting to see a more tra- traditional trajectory of where this campaign is heading. And by that, I mean, and again, you know I follow the numbers pretty closely. The, the polling numbers on this have been wildly um, off, uh, in my estimation, um, because of the way pollsters have been trying mm. to guess at who is actually going to show up in mm. a special election, and a recall special election, which, again, this is only the second one we've had in our state's history. Mm. So it's it's very difficult for pollsters to guess at what the turnout model is going to look like. The way they were doing the methodology, most of these public polls was by asking people, are you enthusiastic about voting or not? Well, the, those that were most fired up were Republicans. Um, and so they weighted it strongly towards a more Republican lean. And then what you started to see was the polls begin to close up. That has changed pretty dramatically as the actual ballots being uh, mm. cast are showing up. And there's an overwhelming Democratic advantage at this point. It doesn't mean that that gap won't close in the last week or two, but it means that this this kind of enthusiasm gap that everybody was talking about never really materialized. You're seeing very energized Democrats. You will probably see Republicans show up because they have been rehabituated to believe that voting by mail is a bad thing and they will show up on election day to these vote centers to cast their ballots. But you will also see a late push by younger voters the way we'd normally do an election and a late push by Latino voters specifically too that will show um, probably an even larger margin for the Democrats than any professional really anticipated. Yeah, which is sort of bizarre. The mail, the, the vote by mail thing is really bizarre considering that is has been sort of a, an, a, a staple of Republican turnout operations for you know 20 years. Um, well, the fact not only, that been, yeah, yeah, and as somebody again who's who's spent many many millions of dollars and many many decades training Republicans yeah. to vote by mail, yeah. to see how how quickly that has switched is not only remarkable, but it, it, depending on the outcome of this election, it could show how how just damaging yeah. that tactic was to Republican efforts. I think it was damaging to Republicans uh, in the general election in 2020. I think it's one of the reasons why Trump lost some of the states that he did. Yeah. And I think that you could see that same effect uh, happening in the midterms is they've, they've, they're turning their own voters off and having confidence in the system of voting. And every time you don't bank a vote, you risk the chance of people not showing up. That's right. Mm-hmm. It sort of counts as two in a way. So, Liz, let's just assume that Newsom survives, which seems likely at this point. Obama is now uh, vocally encouraging Californians to vote no, um, but it's not a given. What lessons do you think Democrats need to take from the entire episode, both in California and nationally? 
Yeah. So I, I read something, I don't know if it was um, from yesterday or this morning, but I think the statistic is that 76% of California recall ballots have still not been returned. Okay. And so when I read that stat, I was thinking, where's the Democratic Party of California, right? Where where are they? Why is this yeah. not a push? You know, I'm seeing more about um, returning your ballot from Sophia Bush and Haley Bieber on Instagram, right? Like what <laughs> I, I know I'm not a California Democrat, but but what what are these folks waiting for? And I'm really happy that celebrities have taken it upon themselves to do this recruitment. But we as Democrats, um, cannot just rely on that for, for our, um, you know, civics engagement here. Look, the Democrats really have to get out in full force. And I hope that folks all over the country are, are watching what's happening in California. I think people look at California and think it's a big old blue state, but obviously Mike can speak to the intricacies of that, but people nationally need to care about this because they need to understand that, um, you know, the climate agenda is on the line in a very big way and national Senate politics are on the line in a very big way. And so this isn't just um, a statement on what folks can do in California and what direct democracy means or doesn't mean, but this is really actually a national race that deserves national attention. And I think you see that from Kamala Harris going to campaign in her home state, you know, Obama talking about this um, to your point. But then we should ask, why does former President Obama and why does Vice President Harris, why do they need to be weighing in on this? How is this still um, an issue? How did the Dems not have this locked up? And I think it goes to so much of what we've already been talking about in this episode, this fear mentality, this patriotic duty to stand up for what you believe in and go against the institution. And I think Democrats really need to be monitoring every component of what is happening with this recall in a very real way to understand and how to best prepare ourselves nationally for for these crucial midterm elections ahead. Yeah, and listeners, if you know people who live in California, you can text them right now and ask, have you voted? Have you returned your ballot? Like Liz said, this the results of this recall have national implications outside of California. So do that now. Okay, so zooming out, though, California for over a century has been you know a haven for direct democracy. Mike, ballot initiatives, referendums, Uh, And of course, recalls are all wrapped into California's history and its constitution. And on its surface, a lot of people think direct democracy sounds like a good thing as a way for voters to directly pass popular policies to hold their government accountable. But Mike, what are some important observations we should be making about direct democracy by looking at California's example? Um, What problems has it caused in the state? and you know, I will add on paper, historically, uh, it has been favored more so by Democrats, many of whom, for example, want to abolish the Electoral College, right? And not so much by Republicans. But that is shifting now as Republicans are trending more populist and anti-institutional in their in their attitudes. So that's a, that's a lot, but mm-hmm. um, feel free to approach it from whatever angle you want. But there's a lot to get at here, and I, and I want to put it it's on the a, table. It's a really great question, and it's one that many books have been written on, and it's one that I've you know, spent my professional career working on. I, I, I'm a big advocate of more direct democracy model that we have in California. It's probably because I'm biased and because I spent so much time working in it. 
Um, but we have to remember the origin story of, of this whole process began during the progressive era as a way to limit the interests stranglehold over our government. At the time, it was railroad. Hmm. And the railroads were so dominant that the progressive Republicans realized they needed to have a more populist measure to allow people to fight back and protect themselves from a legislature that was just allowing the railroads to do whatever they wanted to do. There are a lot of people who find apt comparisons with that, and there are also people who find apt comparisons by saying that the direct democracy model has been hijacked by special interests themselves because it is so expensive to qualify a measure or recall a measure or referenda measure. I mean, this this is you know, to qualify a measure, for example, it's not like you can just go out and get your friends to do this in a neighborhood and have a lemonade right. and you know bake sale. <laughs> you, it's going to take you ten million dollars to get something on the ballot. There's just not a lot of interest groups that can do that. Or are willing to pay that because that's just to get it on the ballot. It'll cost another fifty to seventy million to actually run the campaign. Hmm. And people do forget that the only thing bigger than a statewide measure in California is a presidential campaign. I mean, these are very, very big undertakings and they're very serious and they're extraordinarily expensive. So, but I also do believe, especially in a state that has become more one party over the past 20 years, in many ways it has been the balance. Um, where where uh, voters, if the Democratic Party in this instance in California gets out of whack with it, where voters are at, there is a check on the system. Well, Republicans have completely made themselves irrelevant in the electoral and governance process. The voters still ha do have some recourse to have a voice and say, hey, that's too much. You're going too far. Rein it back in a little bit. So um, there's there's two ways to look at it. It really just depends on what your perspective is. Again, I think I'm probably biased because I've spent my entire adult life and career working in this system um, as a way that uh, my perception has been as a check and a balance on this is our two-party system has basically collapsed in this state. Uh, there are people who who very credibly and 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 legitimately would argue that this allows too much involvement by people into the governance process, and we need to rely more on representative government. There are people who would suggest that you know, people are not reading these initiatives. Uh, they're too informed by and too swayed by, by you know, corporate or moneyed interests that are swaying people based off of sound bites as opposed to legitimate, substantive, thoughtful public policy. Um, those are legitimate concerns. I think that those same concerns can be levied on the legislature themselves, yeah. uh, legislature itself, incidentally. But um, I think it just depends on, on where you sit is where you stand. I do believe we are heading nationally into a place where people are going to start demanding more involvement and more say in their government. I think direct democracy um, is one model. It's one path. Authoritarianism is the other. And we're seeing both of them play out in real time in different states based off of what's happening with the political geography of, yeah. of that state. It's almost as if we are living through a, 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 a massive sort of caricature like the extremes of the, you know, the original Madison Jefferson debates, mm -hmm. right? About, I mean, this is, so we should be clear, this is a question, these tensions, uh, you know, get at the very heart of, you know, the original debate about how America ought to be, ought to work, right? The Federalist Papers. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly I mean, what this is. It's, this is exactly what this is. And, um, and we're now seeing sort of just how basically what those two extremes can look like. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're sort of playing out right now in real time in front of us. So, um, so it's okay to have to, it's okay to entertain multiple perspectives on this. There isn't a right or wrong answer and it definitely shouldn't be driven by which party is it going to help or hurt, right? right. There are more fundamental philosophical questions here about how much involvement, 
um, you know, uh, individuals should have directly on how, how easily should they be able to impose their will on, Mm -hmm. you know, on the rest of the, the rest of the population. So, um, Liz, so, so, you know, looking at Texas's example, uh, (laughs) of a state government that is almost non-responsive to any inputs of its voters, right. Versus California, where the inputs of the voters can drive drastic changes in the state's governance without any oversight of a political class. Um, do you have a, do you have a, a, a strong or weak view on this and what, what our takeaway should be about the right balance between representative and, and direct democracy? I don't really have weak views on much. Um, <laughs> so look, I think Mike's point was so spot on that we're watching these two very different, um, let's call them paths unfold, this authoritarianism for lack of maybe a better word, or maybe that's exactly what we're seeing in Texas versus the super progressive direct democracy in California, both happening at the same time. I think, or I'm very hopeful that both of these scenarios happening um, in tandem will really wake up the average American voter, that if you are not super politically charged or engaged, that you are not just... So coming at this question um, from a totally political perspective, not policy, not legislation, but just from politics, I am hopeful that the average American voter will look at what's happening and say... These very extreme measures, let's call them both extreme um, on on two sides of the coin, we are watching government in action and the way that it very directly impacts its residents um, in a very real and meaningful um, way. And I think that we don't always have this on display. Again, I mentioned earlier in the episode, we have voters who... I think every four years you go to the ballot box for a presidential and maybe every two years for Congress. But th- what month are we in? We're in September, right, yeah. of an off-cycle year yeah. for the most part. And we have some really significant stuff happening in politics um, in, in two very different parts of the country. So I'm hopeful that this will be a wake-up um, for folks to really want to get engaged and and involved, whether it's sending in your ballot in California or focusing on candidate recruitment for the state house in Texas. I'm hopeful that these experiences will really wake people up and think, okay, we, we really need to participate in this American experiment. Yes, yes. Participate in this American experiment. Because not only because what's happening right now is not just about who's in power, but it's also about the the shape and nature of that power to begin with. That in itself is changing. So get involved. One hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Now that we're up to speed on a handful of the biggest stories this week, let's take a look at what we're watching ahead. Mike, what do you have for us? I'm watching El Salvador moving over its national currency to Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> You're stealing my chatter, man. This is exactly what I want to talk about. Go ahead. For a lot of reasons, and I'm not even sure what half of them are. Yeah. But um, you know, El Salvador is a, a you know a state that is devolving very quickly into an authoritarian regime. The last vestiges of democracy are basically fading away. They're um, essentially a financially insolvent country. Uh, they use the dollar as their main uh, currency, but. But they're they're switching over to Bitcoin, and yeah. I, I don't know if it's a gambit or if it's a ruse. I don't know if it's an attempt to kind of um, encourage illicit, uh, illegal behavior to move, you know, to be a holding place, sort of, uh, of an anonymous Switzerland for 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 cartel money or organized crime efforts in order to bolster their economy. I, I, I can't figure out what it is, but it's a it's a very bold stroke. It's a very big move, and I think it's going to be very impactful to see what happens with Bitcoin as a currency on the on the international geopolitical stage. 
Okay, so since you brought that up and I've been following this very closely, I'm going to I'm going to follow you, but I think it is a first of all it is a, it is the first sovereign state ever to recognize Bitcoin as legal tender for all debts public and private. But I also uh from what I gather, it is a it is a it is a sort of a way for them to formally sort of peg uh the currency against the dollar. So it's sort of a proxy to that, but um there's other news. So I think I think that's important to watch. I also think what's very interesting about this uh, is that uh, what 30 million people, I'm not sure I have that number right, but massive number of people in El Salvador just got onboarded to and are in the process of being onboarded to basically Bitcoin wallets. And yet the price in Bitcoin didn't even, there was not even a, a really a, a, an uptick. Um, and I think that sort of speaks to just how small it is in comparison to the overall market cap of Bitcoin, which continues to grow. And also in crypto news this week, um, the SEC is now threatening Coinbase. They got a Wells notice over their Lend product. Governor Abbott signed a law on crypto in June that is actually, you know, by comparison to some of the other things he's done recently, not awful in my view compared to <laughs> his his recent streak. Um, and two bills are aimed at furthering the adoption of cryptocurrencies and blockchain within Texas. So essentially, just uh, creating a a a a legal framework within which companies and individuals can explore these new technologies. And here's the thing that I find most interesting, Mike. And I'm not sure if you saw this news, but there is a fascinating study that just came out that showed uh, that minority ownership of cryptocurrencies is basically double that of white Americans. Wow. Yeah. I did not know wow. that. Yeah. So it's like 11% of white Americans and 25% of 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 minorities own cryptocurrency some some form. So hmm. there's a lot more to discuss on this topic and we're going to do that <laughs> in the future but I thought you would be interested in that. So Yeah. Liz, what do you got? Um, so for me, it is COVID, 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 um, and the Biden uh, speech writing team. So Ooh. we, um, I know this said so this will be um, out before the episode airs, but the president is speaking um, on new COVID um, restrictions, mandates, new COVID efforts, let's call them. And so for me, it's watching his speech writing department to see how will they balance this national address to not make it seem like coercion and will they hit the right tone? Mm -hmm. I think while this should be a policy speech and a science and medicine speech, it will be viewed in a hyper political lens. What is this president demanding we do about this vaccine? What is he mandating? Um, I think we're seeing the word coercion um, a lot more. There was just a video posted on social media yesterday, professor from the University of Western Ontario. And the title of this video read, ethics professor threatened with dismissal if she does not take the vaccine. And so then you have to listen to it and, and read about it to, to get past the headline to think, okay, this university, you know, is instating a policy. And now you have an ethics professor taking it to social media to say, I will not be forced to do this. This is not ethically right. Um, and 
so I think we're just going to start seeing more and more of these kinds of videos and testimonials show up on social media where people are forgetting that we live in a society where there is a social contract, where we have a responsibility to take care of others. And so I'm very interested to see how the president's speech goes, just knowing that it will not just be viewed in a science and medicine backed lens, but really um, hyper-partisan and, and political, unfortunately, because as we talked about, this is, you know, how Donald Trump made the coronavirus pandemic. And yeah. so I, I'm hopeful that the speech writing team at the White House will will hit this out of the park tonight. Mike, Liz, before we uh, go over to the after party, aka Politicology Plus, <laughs> where, where, <laughs> where, where can people find you on the internet? Mike? On Twitter, at Madrid underscore Mike. Liz? I'm underscore Liz Gilbert. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission. You can donate, which helps support the huge team and effort that goes into every Politicology episode. Or you can join the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think more like a political strategist, to look further down the road than everybody else, and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock today's Plus segment and much more at politicology.com plus. You can share this episode or one of your favorites with friends, family, or colleagues. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. And you can rate five stars in the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review there, because this helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.